Hi, it's Hal Anderson. Thanks for checking out the daily podcast for my show, Connecting Winnipeg. And if you can, please listen live weekdays from 10 to noon on 680 CJOB. The big story this morning that everyone is talking about, um, this report in Chicago involving the Blackhawks, and at the time, a decade or so ago, Kevin Cheveldayoff, our general manager here with the Winnipeg Jets, was the assistant GM there. To sort of explain, if you're just hearing about this for the first time, uh, or if you're tuning in now and you're not up on the details, this is how Global News anchor Kevin Hirschfield reported the story last night. The findings of an investigation into sexual assault allegations against a former Chicago Blackhawks video coach have been released, and they may have larger implications for the Winnipeg Jets as well. Now, the Blackhawks have been fined $2 million by the NHL for mishandling accusations in 2010. That's Dave Bradley Aldrich, who was a video coach at the time, had sexually assaulted a player. Chicago General Manager Stan Bowman, who was also GM at the time of those allegations, he's also stepped aside. Several others are being named in their report for their role in this, including current Winnipeg Jets GM Kevin Cheveldayoff. Now, in 2010, Cheveldayoff was the assistant GM of the Blackhawks. When news broke of two lawsuits filed against the team earlier this year, Cheveldayoff said, I had no knowledge of any allegations involving Mr. Aldrich until asked if I was aware of anything just prior to the conclusion of his employment with the Blackhawks. Aldrich left the team after the 2010 season. But the report released today said Cheveldayoff was one of several people involved in a meeting to discuss the allegations in May 2010 during that season's playoffs. The report reads, what is clear is that after being informed of Aldrich's alleged sexual harassment and misconduct with the player, no action was taken after that meeting for three weeks. So what does the future hold for Cheveldayoff? Well, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman saying in a statement today he plans to meet with Cheveldayoff about his role in the situation. And the Jets GM releasing a statement tonight saying, quote, I have shared everything I know about this matter as part of my participation in the investigation. That is reflected in today's investigation reports. I look forward to my discussion with Commissioner Bettman at the soonest possible dates to continue to cooperate fully with the NHL. He says he won't comment until after that interview. Global News anchor Kevin Hirschfield reporting it last night on Global News Television, and that's the story right there. And Kevin did a great job of putting all that in to just under two minutes. So I wanted to start the show with that. Now, some reaction to this report uh, from people that have read the report. Uh, but I just want to mention a text message here from James. And your text messages and emails on this, please, 204-780-6868 or hal at cjob.com. Uh, James says, uh, Hal, with regards to this uh, Blackhawk story, we should also be asking uh, teammates why they didn't speak out. And, and we don't know if that if that happened, or, or I don't know if that happened, but I'm just reading James's text message here. Surely uh, some of them knew what was going on. They all built major contracts off the backs of these Stanley Cup wins. wasn't just management worried about winning. So I look forward to your text messages and emails on this. Now, reaction. Leah Hextall, hockey analyst Leah Hextall, who has read the report. Here is her reaction to this. If you take the time to read that report, it is triggering. 
and you can't believe that a complete institutional breakdown such as this can occur in our game, a game that we love in a situation that was completely mishandled. And what really stands out to me is that the assistant general manager at the time, Kevin Shoveldayoff, knew. And this is from his own words in the report. Shoveldayoff recalled that the group was told that there were allegations that Aldrich was socializing with players outside the arena, that he said inappropriate text to players, and that he made unwanted advances on the players. And Shoveldayoff believed at the time that these were serious allegations, and he remembered someone in this meeting during the playoffs in 2010, he believed it was during the Philadelphia series, the Stanley Cup final, that someone said that there should be an investigation. But there was no investigation, and no one from senior management in the Blackhawks did anything about this. And Aldridge was allowed to go on and sexually assault a Blackhawks intern, a 22-year-old male, and then go to his hometown in Michigan and assault a high school student in which he has pled guilty to a misdemeanor sexual conduct and is now in the Michigan Sex Offender Registry. So because of the lack of inaction, a predator was allowed to continue to prey. And what we know from this report is that Kevin Shoveldayoff knew. So the question now is, what happens to the Winnipeg Jets general manager? Pretty strong uh, comments, but I agree with them uh, from Leah Hextall. Uh, we also heard so far today already on this story from Greg Gilhooly. He's a lawyer, a sex assault survivor himself, and a college goalie. So he knows hockey and he knows this issue well. Listen. The, the report is, it's, it's not good, right? It, it's, it's difficult stuff to read. At the same time, I, I think we have to be careful that when we look back in time, things that seem obvious now may, may have been a bit more difficult to to understand in real time when they were happening. So I do have some sympathy for a guy like Kevin Sheveldayoff, who was not the most senior person in the room when the information came to light. At the same time, what happened was clearly bad enough that without any formal investigation at the end of the season, the team gave the, the, the bad guy either the option of, of moving on or or going under an investigation. So the people in that room knew something bad had happened. What is absolutely understood, and and this is the problem of the report, is that nobody in that room on hearing the information thought about the victim. Every person in that room thought about two things, winning the Stanley Cup, what was best for the team to win the Stanley Cup, and what do I do to protect myself and advance my career? Do I speak up and say, no, we've got to do the right thing? Or do I keep my mouth shut, protect my career, and win a Stanley Cup? And that's the problem. Greg Gihuli, and um, I agree with what Greg said there. And we will wait to see what comes out of Shoveldayoff's meeting with Commissioner Gary Bettman. Uh, I'm not getting very much reaction like this but i want to i want to read this text message um and and just make a comment as we head to a break here at 10 13 texter at 204 6868 says how it's 10 years ago let it go already no we can't let it's they've let it go for 10 years in this particular case and we have to change that attitude we have to get to the bottom of this and we can't just let it go anymore that's what was done to this survivor for more than a decade.
and it can't continue. That text message I read right before the break, a reaction from Dave at 204-780-6868. Are you serious, Al? That texter said it's 10 years ago. Let it go. This person is what's wrong with society, Dave says. Obviously, he's never been through something so horrific. It haunts you forever. That someone has violated you and your body against your will. I've been through it, Hal. It's on my mind. Lots. Even though it happened 15 or so years ago. I'm extremely upset with that texter. And then Dave sends another text and says, You can go ahead and read that. And I just did, Dave. And I'm glad you sent the text. Hopefully, Hal, that person, he or she, is ashamed. I would never wish it on them. Never, ever would I want anyone to go through what I've gone through. So, uh, thanks for the text message, Dave, and all your text messages at 204-780-6868 and emails to hal at cjob.com. Uh, as promised for now, and we'll revisit this story, obviously, as we go along here this morning, but for now we're going to shift gears to derelict buildings in Winnipeg. And as I mentioned, Global News senior reporter Brittany Greenslade has done some really good work on, on this issue, and, and here she is with more now. Fires sparked inside vacant buildings around the city are becoming a pressing concern as crews spend hours battling each out-of-control blaze. We've seen a very dramatic rise in the properties that we've identified as being vacant, approximately 80% over uh, last year's numbers, uh, if you uh, if we keep going at the pace we're at. The Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service says it's responded to 133 fires in a vacant or unoccupied building this year already. There were just 82 last year and 81 in 2019. These fires are exceptionally dangerous. Because these buildings are unoccupied, often boarded up, the fires inside them burn for longer. They're deeper seated in the structure and they're burning much more intensely throughout the entire building as opposed to uh, confined to a room of origin. And so when we get to the fire, it's because the fire is broken out through a window or through the roof and the community's seen it. And by then it's too late. The city says it's been actively trying to lower the number of vacant properties through enforcement since 2011 using its vacant building bylaw. We do the enforcement, we do the administration to reinforce that notion that uh, they cannot let their properties become derelict, whether vacant or not. There are currently 570 buildings listed as vacant throughout the city. New data shows the overwhelming majority are concentrated in neighborhoods in the north and west ends. William White alone has 70 structures listed as empty. On average, every year, our staff remove close to two to 300 uh, vacant buildings in a year. And at the same time, through referral, uh, whether it's through the uh, fire paramedic service uh, or the community, or our officers are finding some that, um, that will then intake some more. Long-term vacant buildings can be subject to an empty building fee, which charges owners 1% of the property's most recently assessed value every year. Well, WFPS and the city are doing what they can, they say owners need to step up. They need to be going and taking a look at their vacant properties and making sure the building's secure, and they need to be re-securing it. Don't wait for a phone call from us at 2 in the morning to say the place is on fire. Brittany Greenslade, Global News. Thank you, Brittany. And coming up after the 1030 News... Fire um, sparked in... Oh, hang on. And uh, after the 1030 News, uh, we're going to talk to uh, Serge Balkan at Brio Insurance about insuring, insuring these derelict buildings. 
Um, now, if it's a full-blown derelict, I'll be interested to hear what Serge says, but I think if it's a, a full-blown derelict building, you may not even be able to get insurance. Uh, but maybe if it's boarded up and vacant, then you, obviously insurance would cost more. We'll talk to Serge about that after the news at 10.30. We have received some reaction from Mayor Bowman on this, on, on derelict buildings. We asked him specifically uh, about our report and, and fires that occur in these derelict buildings. Here's Mayor Bowman. We've been working with uh, with the Winnipeg Fire and Paramedic Service on their, their overarching strategies. But um, in addition to, to that work and some of the questions that you've raised, um, we're always trying to just make sure we're, we're dealing with some of the root causes of crime if, of course, some of these are being criminally set. And I absolutely have to deal with the root causes, but I think you also have to deal with these buildings. And uh, uh, William White, uh, Brittany mentioned in a report there, William White, that neighborhood alone has 70 uh, derelict buildings. And there are buildings out there that would be boarded up vacant and, and even derelict that aren't on the list, right? This is just the official numbers. Uh, that we got, that Brittany got, and um, I would challenge, you know, the councillor uh, in charge of uh, of William White to uh, to do something about the problem. Obviously, in that area of the city, and and Brittany mentioned in a report, North End, West End, uh, it's worth there, worst worse there. Uh, but we definitely have to uh, have to do something about this. And, and so what is being done, Mayor Bowman, on that question? Look, all options will continue to be on the table for, for dealing with this. Our, our Property and Development Committee, of course, uh, is, is always looking at things like this. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll continue to keep all options open. And, and certainly um, when the committee does work, we'll, we'll go from there. And uh, the uh, conversation with Mayor Bowman on the start this morning with McLean, McGarry, and McNabb uh, turned from this, and you can understand why, turned from this derelict buildings to homelessness. And um, so we'll get into that part of the issue later on, homelessness. I don't think enough is being done. Let's get back to derelict buildings. These, um, and, and, and some of them maybe wouldn't necessarily be classified as derelict, uh, but there are some that are vacant, and there are some that are boarded up, and you can properly board up a building, right? Uh, but many are derelict, as we heard last half hour from Global News senior reporter Brittany Greenslade. On the line now, Serge Polkin, commercial producer at Brio Insurance. Serge, good morning. Hey, Al. Um, these uh, buildings, I would suspect many of them are uninsured, right? Well, they can be insured, but they're not insured, obviously, for replacement costs or whatnot. Uh, the coverage on them is very, very limited um, because of the, either the state they're in or or their use, which is nothing. Yeah, but but I would imagine, you know, and I own some properties, so I'm 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 curious about this. Many of those derelict buildings, like full blown, you know, uh, buildings that are are truly derelict. Um, there probably wouldn't even be a, a reason to insure them, right? The owners might just not even insure them, just leave them uninsured. Yeah, you could see that. Um, you know, the only the big risk you run is is the liability, right? But uh, yeah, you know what? Some stuff is just not insurable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could try our best and go to as many companies as we want, but uh, if we can't find coverage, uh, we can't find coverage. Yeah. Um, or, or or coverage that's worth uh, paying for. 
yeah. you know, I, I guess I was raised everything's insurable, but uh, at what price? Yeah, and um, and at what and at some point, you know, it doesn't. And, and I think the pressure needs to be put on the owners of these buildings to do something. And we're talking—that's not your issue, Serge. We're talking about that here today. I think we need to come up with more ways to put these owners of these buildings in a position where they do something useful with them or or give them up or or whatever. How much more would it cost to insure a vacant building and then uh, a boarded-up building and then a full-blown derelict building? It gets pretty expensive, huh? Oh, big time, big time. You know, it's not you're not insuring a strip mall in uh, Sage Creek here. It's uh, it, it's uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, the rates... Uh, Astronomical, um, what 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 the cost of insuring these buildings as they sit are. But as soon as you start doing renovations to them, and you start you know getting something going in them, then obviously things start coming down uh, the costs. And once they're occupied, then it goes back to you know what's in there and what's the postal code and all that. So. It, it, it's 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 one of those things as a as an insurance broker you get a call and I got a you know I got a boarded up building I just purchased and it's like oh boy here we go this is going to be interesting yeah you mentioned postal codes uh, we heard in Brittany's report that it's primarily uh, buildings these derelict buildings are primarily in the north end and the west end they are everywhere but those are two areas of the city where we see a lot of them um, it does even a building's location have an impact on the cost of insurance for sure for sure uh you can have the nicest building in the world if it's located in uh high crime or um you know as an example if it's an area where there's lots of sewer backups then that coverage may not be available or it's very expensive depending on the postal code uh um, you know it's a big uh, big uh, big factor in the in the rates Mm-hmm. And a final question. I know there was a time um, when there were areas of Winnipeg where you just simply could not get insurance. Is that still the case, or or can you, if you're willing to pay for it, can you get insurance pretty much everywhere? Yeah, you you know something's available. Uh, it may not be the best coverages, but you know there'll be coverage available. Uh, but you pay. <laughs> you know, the the worse the the risk, the more you pay. So, um, and you know, the the better the risk, the lower you pay, and the better the coverages are. Mm-hmm. Serge, thanks a lot for this. Appreciate it. Anytime, bud. Joining us now is Ron Mazer, the co-chair of Ours Winnipeg. Ours stands for Outdoor Urban Recreational Spaces. Ron, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, there is a committee vote today on the future of John Bloomberg Golf Course. Tell us about it, and then we'll get into it. Well, your timing is incredible in terms of this interview. Uh, the Assiniboine Community Committee today is uh, dealing with a resolution uh, motion proposed by Councillor Kevin Klein to rescind the City Council decision that declares the John Bloomberg Golf Course as surplus to the needs of the City of Winnipeg. Uh, They have not got to that item uh, at the exact moment. They've taken a break, but it will be dealt with within the next hour, hour and a half. So uh, we don't know the results of that vote. It is a community committee meeting, uh, three individuals. Uh, Councillor Klein's motion uh, is the first uh, 
opportunity to see uh, where these councillors stand on uh, removing the Bloomberg sale proposal. And again, this is committee. It's got a long ways to go over at uh, at City Hall. But the timing is interesting because I knew nothing about that until uh, just before we talked here on, on air. So the timing is good. Um, your organization, Ours Winnipeg, and you started a petition about John Bloomberg. This goes all the way back to Mayor Sam Cates, right? These green spaces that the city uh, says it's, it's willing to let go. You're absolutely correct. And uh, the... Uh purpose, uh, the motivation for organizing uh, green space advocacy uh, was um, when Mayor, then Mayor Sam Cates proposed putting condominiums and retail developments on the publicly owned municipal golf courses in the city of Winnipeg. And we organized, went door to door, uh, got petitions signed, and ultimately won a victory and prevented the public golf courses uh, from being converted into development sites. And uh, so that's where we began. Uh, Here we are. Uh, We did that campaign in 2012. Uh, here we are in 2021 uh, dealing with the same issue regarding John Bloomberg Golf Course. It's publicly owned land. It's a green space. It's a golf course. And the city has proposed in 2013 uh, to declare it surplus, and they are now going to consider uh, selling it to a proposed uh individual or group. Uh, We think times have changed since 2013, and let me say that we are, everyone knows, today we're dealing with issues of the pandemic. You have someone coming on about COVID in a short while. The pandemic has proved the importance of green spaces, park spaces, and golf courses. The use, utilization of golf courses has skyrocketed because it's a safe outdoor sport and recreation activity. There's a lot of distance involved, so it has been extremely popular. We're also dealing with one of the hot topics today in the world is climate change. There's an international conference happening next week about what we do about climate change and how we mitigate it. One of the best ways to mitigate the impacts of climate change is to have green space, and golf courses are green space. They absorb water. They absorb the the carbon dioxide. They mitigate the impacts of, of climate change. So think climate change, think pandemic, and you get the importance of maintaining this green space and this golf course as a public access land. That's the important thing to keep in mind. And let me mm-hmm. just say, in the short time, if people wish to have further information, if they went to ours-winnipeg.com, they would get more information. Thank you. Yeah, and I encourage people to go in and, and get that information. I mean, some people may not agree with it being a golf course, but I certainly agree with the idea of more green space. And so I, I think this needs to be looked at more closely, for sure. It's been a long time since this was first proposed. Things have changed. Um, but talk a little bit about Winnipeg's green space. We're not where we should be, are we? Absolutely not. The uh, study done by a national organization called Parks People identifies that the average amount of green space in major urban centers across Canada 
is 9%, and Winnipeg is sitting at 6%. So we have a lot of makeup to do. The other thing is there's a lot of areas in the older part of the city or the north part of the city that don't have green space. So I think there's a lot of catch-up to do, but let me say the city council uh, at its recent meeting uh, passed a motion uh, changing the planning documents, our Winnipeg and Complete Communities 2, to include a master plan for green space, a biodiversity plan, a nature corridor plan. And I think that these elements indicate that the City Council is much more aware of the importance of green space in regards to climate change, and I'm hopeful that they will change their mind about disposing of this uh, public property at John Bloomberg and converting it into whatever might happen. It is best left as a green space uh, for future generations. Uh, I could tell you that, and your timing here is incredible, Hal, I don't know how you do it, 61 years ago and one day ago, so 61 years and one day, yep. Metropolitan Corporation of Greater Winnipeg passed a motion to add 1,000 acres of parkland to the metropolitan city of Winnipeg. Part of that motion having effect was the purchase of the John Bloomberg golf course land. Hmm. And today we have Councillor Klein, who's meeting uh, this very day to discuss rescinding the sale of that. He has made the proposal, and it was passed unanimously by city council, to add another 1,000 acres to city parkland. So your timing is really quite remarkable. Yeah. Well, listen, Ron, good luck with it. Thanks for coming on. Okay. Thank you for uh, having me, and uh, we will uh, hopefully talk again uh, because the issue will be coming forward before uh, committees of council and ultimately city council. So I thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Ron Mazur, co-chair of Ours Winnipeg outdoor urban recreational spaces again the website ours dot uh, sorry ours dash winnipeg.com ours dash winnipeg.com we're going to talk covid19 now with dr craig jenny associate professor microbiology immunology and infectious diseases at the university of calgary craig good morning good morning hal Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. I wanted to ask you, first of all, the FDA in the States, and, you know, so far what happens there usually happens here. We'll wait and see. But the FDA in the States has said yes to Pfizer, the Pfizer vaccine for kids 5 to 11. Do you expect that to happen here? And and, uh, what would you say to parents of kids that age who might be concerned and, and worried about giving the Pfizer vaccine to their kids? Right. So, you know, it's difficult to say whether we'll see it approved here or not. I haven't seen sure. the full data. I've seen the, the, the summarized data released to the media, and the results were extremely encouraging, which perhaps is not surprising. I mean, we've been vaccinating children in Canada now for you know, 40 years or more. So we know how vaccines work. We know the side effects to look for. We know uh, what we need for efficacy. So perhaps not surprising. I, I still take great.
great comfort in the fact that we do not simply blindly follow the FDA and that there will be a bit of a delay here because Mm -hmm. Health Canada has got its own data set to go through. And if we do get approval in Canada, we we can trust that that was based on Canadian scientists, Canadian uh, physicians looking at that data and making the decision that's best for us. So I do have a great deal of confidence in that. Will it be approved? I'm optimistic, but you know I don't want to commit to things I haven't seen directly. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as getting it out to kids, yeah, I think that this wine could be a game changer. You know, we, we do have to appreciate across the country, uh, this age demographic still represents almost 10% of Canadians. So if we're trying to get to herd immunity, we, we really can't do it with, with having 10% of, of the country ineligible for for vaccination. Um, We've seen tragically kids being admitted to the ICU here in Alberta. We see outbreaks in schools that shut classrooms down. This is how we get get past that. This is how we keep schools open. This is how we keep kids learning in person. Uh, This is how we get them back to their full youth sports and activities with no fear of of outbreaks or or team spread. So, um, you know, there is always a risk of side effects. Uh, definitely talk to your pediatrician, talk to your family doctor. But from what I've seen, they're extremely uh, rare. And, um, you know, I- I'm I'm looking forward to having this approved for, for my own family. And a 5 to 11-year-old would get a third dose, so basically a third of the vaccine yes. that adults have been receiving. And, and you, you called it a game changer. That was going to be my next question. You kind of answered it there. but uh, So you really think that if, in fact, it gets approved for use here in Canada – that this is a big deal. Absolutely. I mean, we have to remember that these kids, although they don't get severely sick, some tragically do. We have to keep that in mind, too. It's rare, but it still happens, and a vaccine could make that avoidable. But these kids are able to spread the virus, and not only to their classmates and their siblings and their teammates at hockey or soccer, but to their grandparents and in those long-term care facilities and in the other at-risk groups. I mean, if we want to gather at Christmas with elderly family members or immunocompromised family members, we would want everybody to be vaccinated in order to to protect those at risk in our community. And kids are absolutely a vector for that. I mean, anybody with children and and sends them off to daycare or, or, or kindergarten those first few years, realize that they are a Petri dish and bring every single infection possible home on a daily basis. So um, it, it is a critical piece of our public health strategy, critical piece to protecting uh, at-risk family members, and, and really a, a big step to getting us to community-level herd immunity. In B.C., just west of you there in Alberta at the University of Calgary, that province has uh, announced a plan for all eligible residents 12 and older to get booster doses Mm -hmm. by next May. Um, That's a a move we have not seen elsewhere. Should we see it elsewhere? We may. So this is based on monitoring the data. And keeping in mind, May is still quite a ways off, right? We're we're talking now, for most people, that'll be a year or more since their first shot. So I think a lot of people were suggesting that we may need a booster out around that 12-month mark, uh, 14-month mark. Uh, Again, we, we have seen nationwide recommendations for those at risk. Uh, to get a booster, and that's because we are monitoring the situation. We are looking for that waning immunity. We know that up to about a year that the immunity is fine in the average person, that there, there's no significant drop-off. But moving past that, you, you know, it's good to be proactive and, and to have the infrastructure in place if we need that booster to be able to to offer it instead of having to respond to a situation. Mm-hmm. Our test positivity rates on the rise here in Manitoba, primarily because of more transmission in the south and in the north. Uh, and I personally worry about those areas where vaccine uptake is low. 
in Alberta, uh, where the situation, where my mom is and, and safe, I'm happy to say, um, it, are you seeing areas where vaccine uptake is lower? And what's happening there? Because I do worry about, you know, we're so connected, right? I, I worry about those areas with lower vaccine uptake and how it might impact the other parts of the province that have done really well getting the vaccine. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this isn't just a Manitoba, Alberta. This is across Canada. We do have communities and regions with lower vaccine uptake. They do become at-risk communities. They do become outbreaks and hotspots. We have seen that in Alberta where the northern communities, for example, have really, uh, you know, w- w- without argument, overwhelmed the, the healthcare facilities in the north. You know, Fort McMurray is one of these places that we were able to fortunately fly in additional medical help from outside of the province. So we, we were fortunate to get volunteers from uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, and they've gone up to Fort McMurray to help ease that pressure. We've also been moving patients around the province. People from those northern health zones are being transported to the urban centres and because there's simply no capacity in the north and then that adds further congestion to the medical system in, in the urban centres. So it is a problem. Uh, it is something that, that we need to address and uh, there's a lot of reasons for it. Some are even as simple as access to vaccine. If you've got to drive two hours to a pharmacy to, to get a shot, it, you're much less likely to do that. Um, but there is also just, you know, belief that they're not at risk or, or that the the disease is not as severe as it, as it is. So there's a lot of work to be done to, to uh, you know, show these individuals uh, how serious the infection can be and, and how safe the vaccines are. Um, but it, until those are covered, we, we can expect outbreaks, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future as virus enters. I think the other big difference in Alberta, though, is we do have, and I, I can't speak directly to Manitoba, but a lot of these northern communities are fly-in, fly-out workforce from many parts of Canada, and, and there's a risk of bringing virus into these otherwise isolated communities from areas of high transmission. So flying people from large cities into small towns uh, does absolutely increase their risk of exposure. All right, Craig, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Hal. Take care. Dr. Craig Jenny at the University of Calgary joining us here on Connecting Winnipeg.